Good evening. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians? And if you don't have a Bible with you, would you take out one of the Bibles that's provided for you there in the pew? And if you'll make the effort to turn over to 1 Thessalonians, basically the whole lesson is going to be coming from that book. Uh, we'll consult a few other passages as we go through, but the outline for our lesson this evening will come from the book of 1 Thessalonians. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the fourth chapter. I'm really excited about the lesson uh, tonight. Uh, I've been excited about it all week. Uh, unfortunately, my level of excitement for a lesson only sort of corresponds with how the lesson actually turns out. And, and I'll admit that part of my excitement is a little bit of selfish because this is my favorite kind of lesson to preach, where I, I take a book of the Bible and I look at most of that book and then make application to our lives. And the book that I'd like to think about for a few moments tonight is the book of First Thessalonians. So if you'll turn over there, you'll be ready to go. Um, when we think about the letters that Paul specifically wrote that are found in our New Testaments, we know that is that me? Uh, we, we know that the relationships that he has with those people are, are very different. The, the length of the relationship, the depth of the relationship. And we also know that the letters written to those churches were written to people who were at all different stages in their spiritual development. People who had been Christians for a long time, Christians who had only been Christians for a few months. Uh, at one end of the spectrum, we have Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, he's writing to people with whom he has a long-standing, deep, intimate relationship with them. He's spent lots and lots of time in Philippi. He has love for them. They have love for him that is, is something that's taken place over the course of years. And, and these brethren, when he writes the letter to the Philippians, had been Christians for years that's kind of one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the letter to the Thessalonians, especially this first letter to the Thessalonians. He had only met them a few months earlier when he wrote this letter, and they were brand new baby Christians who had only been Christians for a few months. And you see that in the letter itself. You see that in the way he talks to them and the way he encourages them. Uh, the way you would talk to a child is going to be different than the way you would talk to an adult. And the same thing applies when we think about someone who's brand new in the faith versus someone who's been in the faith a long time. Uh, so give me just a couple of minutes to think about Thessalonians and the book as a whole, and then we're going to focus in on the fourth chapter. In chapter 1, Paul begins by heaping praise on them for their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope. He commends them for receiving the word in much affliction, but with joy of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, these brand new baby Christians had become examples to people who had been Christians for a long time, uh, including, in all likelihood, that church in Philippi that we talked about a second ago. They're examples to the whole region for what they're doing there in Macedonia and Achaia. Then in chapter 2, he reminds them of what his preaching to them was, and what, is, what it wasn't when he came and preached the gospel to them. And he reminds them of their acceptance of his preaching that led to their conversion. If you're looking there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, notice just verse 13. This is a good summation of that. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men... But as it is in truth, the word of God, 
which also effectively works in you who believe. Unfortunately, the circumstances that we read about in the book of Acts, the circumstances in Thessalonica forced Paul to leave well before he wanted to. And so he sent Timothy back to them in order that Timothy might do a couple of things for them. Two things that we see in chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul says that he sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to, number one, establish you, and number two, to encourage you concerning your faith. So first of all, Timothy was supposed to establish them concerning their faith, make them solid and stable and firm, to, to strengthen them so that they can endure whatever it is they needed to endure, to make them rooted and grounded in their faith and in the faith. And closely associated with that, he was going to, number two, encourage them concerning their faith. Why? Well... Why do young converts especially need encouragement? Well, after you become a Christian, the devil's after you. And the reality was for them that there was going to be affliction and tribulation and temptation. And he talks about those things in verses 3 through 5. You're going to have some hard times. You've already had some. You're going to have more as Christians. And you need to be established and encouraged in your faith if you're going to be able to endure those times. Uh, that sounds very similar to what our theme is as we think about being rooted and grounded, and especially as we think about this quarter being rooted and grounded in the faith. Well, what we're going to see here in 1 Thessalonians is that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to do with, with sending Timothy and then writing this letter to kind of follow up with them. Uh, in verses 6 through 10, this is Timothy's report back to Paul. So let's read that together. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live... If you stand fast in the Lord, for what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now notice that last phrase. What was it that Paul chose to emphasize after hearing back from Timothy that these new Christians, hey, they're doing great. But he says there's some things that we need to perfect, we need to complete, that are lacking in your faith. I mean, isn't that something that we would be interested in? What was it that he sought to perfect or complete that was lacking in their faith? Well, that's the content for our lesson tonight. And this is a lesson for all of us, but it is especially a lesson for, for young people. Um, and I want you to listen up, young people. We've got some here who are graduating. We've got some who have uh, finished college uh, for their semester and are back with us uh, here tonight. And this isn't the graduation sermon I try and do every year, but it is something that I want you to listen carefully. 
Because although maybe you've been Christians for a few years, you're still young in your faith in so many ways. And so the Apostle Paul says, if you're young in your faith, this is what you need to know. This is what I want to emphasize. This This is what needs to be completed in your faith. This stuff that we're going to talk about tonight, it applies to all of us, but man, does it apply to you. And so I want you to listen carefully to what it is Paul is going to emphasize to them. And there are three elements of being rooted and grounded in the faith that the Apostle Paul is going to emphasize in chapter 4. But what he does, as all good preachers do, he gives us a little introduction to what he's going to say in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 3. So let's read that together. You see if you can see the three elements that he's going to talk about in chapter 4. Now may our God and Father himself... And our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints." Um, So three elements in those three verses that he spends all of chapter 4 talking about in detail. I would suggest he's emphasizing their love for one another and all, their holiness and blamelessness before the Lord, and then the coming of Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now that's not exactly the order he puts them in chapter 4. In chapter 4, those three things are righteousness, relationships, and reward. And whether you're an, an old Christian or a young Christian, whether you've been a Christian a long time or you've been a Christian a very short time, righteousness, relationships, and reward, that's really a pretty good summation of what Christianity is all about in terms of how we're supposed to be living our lives. So the three elements to being rooted and grounded in the faith that we see in chapter 4, we have to commit to righteousness in verses 1 through 8. We have to care about relationships in verses 9 through 12. And then number 3, we have to comfort in reward in verses 13 through 18. So that is our lesson tonight. Uh, Let's read chapter 4 together and see if we can make some good applications to these things. First of all, we have to commit to righteousness. Begin reading in verse 1 of of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, this is a new section, then, finally then, so it's based on what he said at the end of chapter 3, We urge and exhort, urge and exhort. Those are two words used for emphasis. Uh, Exhortation might be the stronger of the two. We might say, he says, I'm asking you and I'm telling you. I'm requesting and I'm admonishing you. So finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk And to please God. This is how you're supposed to live your life. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Uh, Twice in these two verses he talks about that this is through or by or in the Lord Jesus. Now that refers to the authority of Christ. Paul is writing as an instrument of the Lord. He's not saying, you know, these are just some good thoughts. 
He's not saying this is, you know, maybe some stuff that's wisdom. He's not saying these are my ideas on these things. He's saying this is what the Lord wants from you. And it's with that kind of authority that I'm telling you the things that I'm about to tell you. As he says there in verse 3, for this is the will of God. Not my will, not Paul's will. It is the will of God. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject men, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. So, I say all of that. These aren't Reagan's ideas. These aren't even Paul's ideas. This is the commandment. These are the teachings that are coming from Jesus Christ as Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he expected, he expected those in Thessalonica to follow these commandments. This is being rooted and grounded in the faith from God. And God wanted them to abound more and more in their righteous living and that they might please God there at the end of verse 1. Remember our question from last Sunday morning, does this please God? That is the question that is being asked here as well. Paul says you need to please God and so you need to ask yourself, is the way I'm living pleasing to God? And I think in some ways this strikes at the heart of some of the dismissal of the New Testament that we see in religious circles and Christian circles. Were these things that Paul's about to say, were these things required for the Thessalonians? Give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. All right. Yeah, they're required. Does this sound like, does this language that Paul is writing, does this sound like, as some would suggest, a mere love letter? It's just a love letter. There are no real doctrinal requirements. It's just, you know, stuff that we want to try and apply. Or does this sound like something that is a requirement for us to do? It's a requirement. Does it sound like um, these things were something that would only apply to the Thessalonians and nobody else, no, no other Christians in that time, no Christians today? No, again. These things that we're talking about tonight are fundamental things for all Christians in all places for all time. We all need to hear them. So what was the will of God? Well, let's keep reading verses 3 through 8. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, his own body, and sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, in this matter of sexual immorality, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So the application that Paul makes here is to sexual immorality. And in our overly sexualized world, I think that's something that's probably needed for us as well. I've heard in recent years, and I don't think this is anything new, but maybe it's accelerated to a certain degree. I've heard those who claim to be Christians trying to justify all sorts of sexual behaviors outside of marriage. Young people especially uh, uh, fall prey to this sometimes. Uh, young people are questioning whether sex before marriage is even wrong or what sexual activities are not technically you know, it. And so maybe you can do these other things as well. 
But that kind of compromise on this matter of holiness, righteousness, sanctification, that kind of compromise has consequences. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul wants to get across to these brethren in Thessalonia. I mean, most of these brethren, we know the reaction of the Jews in Thessalonica. Do you remember from the book of Acts? They ran Paul out on a rail. That's why Paul had to leave when he did, because the Jews... The Jews didn't, not very many of them accepted the gospel. And so this church, full of brand new baby Christians, they didn't even have this Old Testament background to fall back on. I mean, they're coming straight out of paganism into Christianity. And for them, sexual immorality was probably just kind of the order of the day. And and the Apostle Paul says, you can't be that way anymore. That's not the way you live as a Christian. And, and he makes this comparison to the Gentiles who do not know God in verse 5. You do. You know God. And so you can't fall into this trap of justifying this kind of sin. Uh, it has consequences in a couple of different ways. There are what we might call the, the, the collateral consequences of sexual immorality. There are consequences on others, right? Right? Uh, He says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Uh, He uses that same literary device again where he uses one word and then the stronger synonym for emphasis. What's his point here? His point is that our sin impacts other people, especially those with whom we might be committing that sin. We are causing them to sin. And how could you do that to someone? How could you take advantage of or or even defraud that stronger word that he uses, a brother or sister in Christ whom you say that you love, and he's going to talk about that more here in just a second, you say that you love them, how could you take advantage of them in that way and cause them to sin? That sin has consequences on others, and those those consequences are often far-reaching. And in this matter, we need to be especially careful. But it isn't just these kind of indirect collateral consequences on others. If we continue reading in these verses, there are also consequences on us, direct consequences of this sin. Uh, Keep reading again. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified. God's judgment is the consequence. And we are called to be a certain way. We are called to be holy and sanctified. We're called to be righteous. And when we aren't that way, we're rejecting God and we face His judgment. Uh, If you drop down to chapter 5 and verse 23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body Be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God sanctifies us. Now we need to work to stay that way and grow more that way. Um, Now I've said all of that and I haven't even given you a definition for sanctification. Uh, Sanctification is just the idea that you're set apart for a special purpose. We think about John the Baptist, right? He was sanctified. He was set apart for a special purpose from... Before his birth, he was supposed to be doing some things for the Lord. And I think a lot of times when we think about righteousness and holiness and sanctification, a lot of times we make application, rightly, like Paul does here, to things like sexual immorality, things that we shouldn't be doing. Those things are unholy, so we shouldn't do those things. 
But when we think about the apostle, uh, not the apostle, John the Baptist, for example, when John the Baptist was sanctified, that was about some things that he wasn't supposed to do, but wasn't it also that he was set apart to do some things? That there were some things that he was supposed to be doing? And maybe we need to think about holiness, righteousness in that same way. Uh, maybe sexual immorality isn't your struggle. I'll, I'll admit at this point in my life, it's not mine. So what is? Where do you need to be sanctified? Where do you need to be righteous and holy? And maybe it is not some great big sin that you're saying, I need to quit doing this. Maybe it's a commitment to do some things that God has set you apart to do in fulfilling your purpose and I think especially that's a message for young people, to new Christians. There are some things that God has equipped you to do. And he wants you to get busy doing those things. Uh, last Sunday night we talked about Psalm 101 uh, and where do I need to be sanctified is the last thing there on that list. Uh, Psalm 101 and five commitments that David made there. And I ask you at the end of that lesson to write out five commitments that you were going to make as well. It's interesting some of the comments that I got from that. Uh, Brother, I have a lot more than five was one of the comments that I got from a couple of different people. Uh, somebody else said, well, I had five before you even done with your lesson. Well, we all have things that we need to be working on. But this is something I really want to clarify from last week. Righteousness and holiness isn't just not doing things that we shouldn't. It is also, in some ways, maybe more so, committing ourselves to doing the things that we should do. And so when you think about those five commitments that you make, and I know part of it's the illustrations that I used, I'm not going to do this. Those are good commitments. But may I challenge you this evening, whatever age you are as a Christian, can you make commitments to do some things for the Lord? This, this is what I am going to do for him. That's the kind of commitment that we need to make. And that's the kind of commitment that Paul calls the Thessalonians to make uh, in verses 1 through 4. You've got to commit to this kind of righteousness, holiness, and sanctification. Okay, the second thing that we see is found in verses 9 through 12. And what we see in verses 9 through 12 is that we've got to care about relationships. Uh, when you become a Christian, it's not just all about me and what I need to be doing and my sanctification and my righteousness. I have to care about these other people around me who are trying to do the same things. And I have to care about people in the world as well. Christianity is a, is a religion of relationships. And I've got to care about those relationships. I can't be a, a solitary soldier thinking, I'm going to do this all by myself. That's not the way Christianity works. And I think sometimes, maybe as new Christians, that's kind of the way we feel, that I'm on this island all by myself, and I'm trying to do these things that are right. When God wants us to remember that we're part of a family, we're part of a body, we're part of an army, we're part of a group of people who are there for one another, to help one another uh, in doing what it is we're supposed to do. So we've got to care about relationships. And, and he points out a couple of different kinds of relationships in these verses. There are relationships with one another in verses 9 and 10, and then relationships with the world in verses 11 and 12. So read 9 and 10 with me. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. 
For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Now we know how foundational and fundamental love is to being a Christian. But I'm going to kind of follow after the pattern of Paul here in verses 9 and 10. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about that. He says you're taught by God and you're doing it. You're showing love. And when I look at the congregation this evening, the people who are here, you love one another. And God be praised that you do love one another. So my admonition is Paul's admonition. Abound more and more in that. You're doing great. Try and do even better. How can I love my brothers and sisters more? In the depth of that love, in the kind of love that I show, in the expressions of love that I give. Uh, Weaver in his commentary says this, There is no area in the Christian life where love is not to be the norm. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's about love. So abound more and more in that love for one another. But we also have to care about our relationships with the world, verses 11 and 12, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now, obviously that applies to our relationships with other Christians, but notice what he says in verse 12, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. In regard to our relationships with the world, what do we want the world to do in regard to our Christian faith? What what are we hoping for? What are we aspiring to in regard to the world around us? Well, the aspirations of the Christian life in regard to the world in which we live is, number one, to lead a quiet life to lead a life that is settled and stable. It is not disorderly. It's not full of drama. We, they're going to suffer some persecution in Thessalonica, but you know, Paul says that's not what you're hoping for. What you're aspiring for is a quiet life. To lead this quiet life where you can mind your own business. Um, now that phrase, mind your own business, has been misused to suggest that we can't tell anybody when they're wrong. Uh, In fact, I watched a a sermon from a very popular uh, preacher um, who who made that kind of statement. In fact, he apologized to non-Christians and he says, if a non-Christian has ever told you what you need to be doing in your life, I want to apologize for them. We're supposed to mind our own business. Well, we can obviously take that concept far too far. Far too far? Way too far? It doesn't undo all of the other passages in the Bible about how we're supposed to be a salt to the earth how we're supposed to influence others, how we're helping others who are in need and striving to bring them to Christ. But the reality is, none of us are able to change everyone about everything. And there is a sense in which we need to be minding our own business where we aren't busybodies. And if we talk to someone about something in their life, let's make sure that it is something that is really important. And I'd take that a step further Maybe we should be talking to them about things that are spiritual. If we're going to go out and talk to somebody about their life, we should come at it from that perspective. And again, that's talking about our relationship with the world. With other Christians, we should be a little more bold, but with the, with the relationship with the world, with our acquaintances, our coworkers, our extended family, friends of friends, 
If you think about those kinds of secondary relationships with people in the world, we might only get one opportunity to make them think and consider our point of view before they shut us down. One time for them to listen to us when we address something in their life that we don't believe is what they ought to be doing. What what do we want to use that opportunity on? What point of view do we want them to consider? We need to be known as the kind of people who mind our own business so when the time comes that we actually do meddle with somebody else's life, they know that it is really super important. And then the third thing that we should be known for is that we work with our own hands, that we work hard is the idea, that we work and support ourselves. And this is the kind of person who's going to gain influence with people in the world. We're going to walk properly toward those who are outside where we are able then to have influence on them. We're a Christian. We cannot take the kind of mentality, um, and I'll admit I've fallen into this at different points in my life, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care about all those other people. I'm just going to do what I know is right. Well, doing what I know is right includes caring about relationships. And that's what the Apostle Paul says here. And then the final thing, the final fundamental element to being rooted and grounded in the faith that he wants these brethren to know is that we need comfort in reward. Now that includes both being comforted by others and comforting others uh, with this reality in view here. So start there in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Um, They have some anxiety, these brethren do, about what's going to happen when you die? What about these people who have already died in these months since Paul came? Yeah, they were Christians, but but now they're dead, and I thought Jesus was going to come again, and, and he's not here yet. So what's going to happen to these people? They're, they're all worked up about it. They have anxiety about it. And what was causing that anxiety? Well, it was their ignorance. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Uh, I don't want you to have misconceptions about what death is uh, and how we should view death as Christians. And viewing... Viewing our reward and the death between us and that reward is is a vitally important part of what being a Christian is. And Paul's first response is to teach them, to correct their misconception in the expectation that, that this would correct their actions regarding those who have fallen asleep. And just as an aside, I think that's my favorite phrase for, for the death of a Christian fall asleep. Uh, Death can be peaceful even if the circumstances of that death are not. I'm going to throw a lot of verses up on the board. We're not going to turn to all of those, but you can put those down in your notes. One of those that I want us to think about is that that verse there in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60 where Stephen is literally being stoned to death. And what does, how does Luke in the book of Acts describe his death? He fell asleep. One of the most violent deaths that you could suffer, and yet because of his relationship with Christ, he has fallen asleep. Uh, So, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Is this passage saying that it's wrong for us to sorrow? 
Yes, no. Is it wrong for us to sorrow? Some of you are bold enough to say, no. No, of course not. Do we need to look uh, at occasions of death, funerals and so forth, as celebrations or graduations? That's, that's become much more popular in recent years. Well, my response would be certainly those elements are there for someone who's a faithful Christian. But that doesn't seem to be Paul's emphasis here. He says we should not sorrow as kathos kai, as indeed, even as, to put it in Reagan terminology, don't, don't sorrow just like everybody else. Don't grieve in the same way, in the same manner. I believe that this passage is saying that our sorrow as Christians is supposed to be different. We sorrow, but not just like everybody else. We sorrow in a different way. Uh, verse 18 says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. My question is, do you need comforting if you aren't sorrowing? <laughs> it is not that we don't sorrow, but we have comfort in our sorrow. And why is that distinction important? I think it's important for, uh, well, three reasons. Number one, because it's biblical. And even if we don't always know the reasons why, we need to take a biblical position on things. But I can, I can see two other reasons. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2 says, Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Death is a real and serious and dangerous consequence of sin. We're told that the wages of sin is death. and We're told that we are all going to die. Now, as Christians, we don't fear death. We welcome what death brings if we're faithful. Philippians 1 and verse 21, Paul says, to die is gain. But let's not confuse that gain with somehow thinking that death itself is a good thing, because it's not. It's an evil thing. And Christ, you know, you know why Christ had to come? He had to overcome sin and Satan, sure, but Christ had to come so that he might overcome and conquer death for us. And that wasn't an easy thing to do. And we will all die unless the Lord comes again first. And so we have to be ready. Our sorrow reminds us to take to heart the day of our death. Even if we rejoice that the one who died is faithful, we must think and consider and say, will others be rejoicing when I die? Will they have that same confidence at my death? But then the other thing... Um, I think it's important because I've seen Christians, uh, I've seen Christians who seem almost uh, guilty about grieving for a lost Christian loved one, and maybe others have made them feel guilty for being sad, for sorrowing on these occasions, and that is not Paul's point. That is not his intention here. Even Jesus wept in John 11 and verse 35, uh, and I would suggest he's weeping even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few minutes. And yet still he's weeping. Whatever you think he was weeping about in that passage, he wasn't discounting the sorrow of Mary and Martha and others as some sort of weakness. He was empathizing and sharing in the sorrow that they were feeling. But in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says this, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. What an important if. I mean, this is at the core of, of our faith. Uh, theologically, doctrinally, practically, we believe what? That Jesus died and Jesus rose again. Now, I promised you earlier that you could just kind of stay in 1 Thessalonians. I'm not going to break my promise, so you don't have to turn here if you don't want to. But I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It seems as though Christians in the first century, at least in Corinth and Thessalonica, had misconceptions about death and resurrection and the afterlife. Uh, they were different, um, but related in some ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That was the false doctrine that was circulating. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The very opposite of the thing he says in 1 Thessalonians, we have comfort. No, if the dead do not rise, then they've perished. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men most pitiable. Now earlier in chapter 15 he talks about uh, in verse 3, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again a third day according to the scriptures. That's the foundation of Christianity. That's the foundation of the gospel. And if this one thing is true, if Jesus rose from the dead, what else is true? That means God exists. That means Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised Messiah, the Son of God. That means that the Bible is true, not just in some sort of historical sort of way, but its claims and its commandments and its requirements are true. And this is in many ways the pivotal argument for inspiration. And the point that Paul is making in 1 Thessalonians is that we too will be raised from the dead if it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus' resurrection and ascension is a foreshadowing of our resurrection, that God will bring us to eternal life in heaven as he did his son. And so we sorrow, but not as others who have no hope, because we believe that Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead. So let's read the rest of these verses Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What was it that they were using to comfort one another? These words, verse 18. The word of the Lord, back in verse 15. 
The proper knowledge of the truth instead of ignorance in verse 13. Words mean something. And words are how we can find comfort. Heaven, hope, victory, Christ. Those are all just words. But the concepts behind those words should give us great comfort. And knowing this and living in such a way that it shows we really believe it is the source of our comfort. And it is stronger than any momentary, physical, human attempt at comforting through through emotions or white lies or distractions by things that feel good. We know these things. And we find comfort in these things. We sorrow. But that sorrow is totally different because of this knowledge. Because we are rooted and grounded in the faith. So, even though they were brand new baby Christians... Paul holds them to a really high standard here, doesn't he? As Christians, we should expect more of ourselves and more of others. We should expect more of our children. We should expect more of those who are going off to college or to the workforce. We should expect more of them than just don't fall away. God certainly expects more. He expects us to live our faith because we are rooted and grounded in the faith, because we're committed to righteousness and we care about relationships and we found comfort in reward. And if all of those things are true, then we're going to live those three concepts, righteousness, relationships, and reward. I I might put it this way. Using these same verses, we're going to live in purity. We're going to live in love. We're going to live in quietness and industry. We're going to live in hope. And doesn't that sound like the kind of life that is worth living? Doesn't that sound like the Christian life? And that's true of a Christian, whether you're new to the faith or you've been a Christian for years and years and years. This is the way that we live. And we live so with expectation of the life to come. If you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian... You can imitate some of these things, try and mind your own business, love other people, but ultimately you are not going to have the purity, the righteousness and holiness that can only come from God when He forgives you of your sin. And you're not going to have that last one. You're not going to have the hope of eternal life that is only found in a right relationship with Him. But you can. And Christ died on a cross so that you might have that opportunity, that opportunity to come and put Christ on in baptism Just as Christ died, was buried, and was raised, you too can die to the old man of sin and repentance. You can go down into a watery grave and you can rise to walk in newness of life. And if you're already a Christian and you realize you've not been living in these ways, well, commit yourself to righteousness, relationships, and reward. But I remind you, you're not alone in that. And you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are here to help you. All you've got to do is come. While together we stand and while we sing. Put your arm, put on the Lord, shut down.